Take your Bibles, if you've got them, and turn with me to the book of Romans, the book of Romans chapter 12. We are in the midst of a, um, starting actually today, a series that's going to be three weeks long, and we're going to talk about what true worship looks like. And I know when I use the word worship, uh, sometimes there's lots of kind of baggage that comes with that, or ideas that come with that, or thoughts that you immediately think about that, about what worship is. And in fact, if I were to kind of do a survey and ask you, when you hear the word worship, what do you think of? There'd be lots of different answers that might be given. And so over the next three weeks, what I do want to do is to kind of look at a biblical understanding, a biblical basis for what true worship is, and then how that flows out into our lives. And now, most of the time when I say the word worship, the first thing that you think of is what we are doing here Today And so you think of Sunday morning at a church singing songs. And in fact, most of us, when we think of worship, probably think of the music side of the worship. And we begin to think about music that we like, worship that we like. And so we're going to talk about that over the course of this series. But what I want to do today is kind of lay the foundation for what is required for all true worship. That for true worship to happen, that there are certain things, whether we're talking about music, whether we're talking about the corporate experience that we have on a Sunday morning, whether we're talking about your own personal life as you're living your life daily, there are certain things that must be true, that must be a part of your worship in order for it to be true worship. It doesn't matter the music that you're listening to or singing, doesn't matter the activities that you're doing or not doing, doesn't matter all of that surrounding it, that if these four things aren't a part of it, then it's not considered biblical worship. We're actually going to talk from a place that doesn't talk about music at all, that doesn't talk about a worship experience at all, but talks about our lives in general as believers in Romans chapter 12. So Romans chapter 12, starting in verse 1, says this, Therefore, brothers and sisters, in view of the mercies of God, I urge you to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. This is your true worship. Do not be conformed to this age, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind, so that you may discern what is the good, pleasing, and perfect will of God. And so when you look at Romans chapter 12, you have to have a little bit of background about what's happening before we dive in. In fact, what we're going to do today is we're going to look specifically at verse 1 for those four characteristics that have to be a part of everyone's worship, whatever you consider worship to be. But before you do that, or before we do that, I want to kind of talk a little bit about verse 2 and talk about the entirety of the book of Romans because one of the most important ideas in the book of Romans is That the gospel is not just the way we begin a relationship with Jesus Christ. The gospel is more than just this is how we begin a relationship with Jesus. That the gospel is the endeavor through which we learn how to follow Jesus, how to grow in Jesus, how to become more like him on a daily basis. Now you say, well, what do you mean by the gospel? What I mean by the gospel in Romans is what is written from Romans chapter 1 through chapter 11. Paul has been unpacking, and we don't have time obviously today to go through all of that, but he has been unpacking this entire 11 chapters, what the gospel message is, what the truth of the gospel is. And here's what the main idea is. The main idea is that contrary to all other religions, 
God accepts us not because of who we are or what we've done. He doesn't accept us because of what we do or don't do. That Jesus has paid the price for us and that God accepts us because of what Jesus has done and offers us the gift of salvation. Now that makes Christianity different than any other religion because every other religion on the earth has this set of goals and ideas and things that you ought to do and that once you get there, once you attain that level, then you are accepted by God. Every religion in the world except for the gospel operates with this claim, I obey, therefore I am accepted. Christianity operates in a different way. The idea behind that is I'm accepted, therefore I obey. And what Paul says in Romans chapter 12, what Paul says throughout the book of Romans, what Paul writes in other parts of the New Testament is this, that the gospel, the story, the good news that Jesus Christ has died for our sins has the power of God. In fact, in the Bible, there are only two things that are mentioned to have the power of God. One is Jesus and the other is the gospel, the story of his love. And so the idea behind the book of Romans is this. Because the book of Romans was written to a group of believers. It wasn't written to a group of unbelievers. It wasn't written to a group of, it's not an evangelistic track written to them. It's a written to people that were already following Jesus. And he's reminding them of all that God has done for us. In order that when you get to Romans chapter 12, he can say that as a result, this is how you live. Now the problem for us is that a lot of us grew up in a Christianity and churches, including myself, that taught that the gospel, that God's free gift of salvation is how you get into Christianity. But then once you get in, here's your list of do's and don'ts to be okay. Like, this is how you, this is how you get to the gospel. Does that make sense? Like, this is how you get into Christianity. But then once you get in, hey, here's your list of good things to do. Here's your list of bad things. Don't do those. And when you do that, you'll be a good Christian. Sometimes people are using that phrase, boy, he's a really good Christian. And the idea is he follows the list. Now, I grew up in a church where this was kind of embedded in me at an early age. And maybe you didn't grow up in a church like this, but I did. I grew up in a church where every week on our offering envelopes, my mom would give me an offering envelope. And my offering envelope, she would hand it to me. We'd put, you know, a couple of quarters in, pennies in, whatever it is. I was going to give it at school or at Sunday school or at church. And on it were always this checklist. Anybody else have a checklist on there? Yeah. And their checklists were, you know, um, read Bible daily, brought Bible to church, giving to it. People would turn in these offerings without giving any money because they wanted to make sure all their checklists were there. Was brought a friend to church, invited someone, shared Christ. And I remember, I literally remember this. I was in third grade. I was in Miss Dorothy Gaines and Mr. Cook's Sunday school class. And we would walk in every week and they would take up our offering and it was like they would grade us. They would look at, oh wow, I see you read your Bible every day. That's awesome. Glad to do that. Hmm. Don't see anything about the prayer every day on here. And so I would forget sometimes and I would get to church. And this was after I was already accepted Christ. I would get to church and I would look down at that checklist. And I would think, how many of these can I knock off right now? <laughs> you know, and you know, like, like uh, 
I read seven verses. That's like a verse every day. So that'd be read Bible daily. I'm good with that. Like share Jesus with somebody riding in the car. My brother's in the car. I know you need Jesus. Do that. You know, like you get there and you turn it in like, whoo, I did my stuff. I'm getting better. Like every week. That's how I graded myself. And scripture doesn't teach that at all. It doesn't teach that, hey, you get into the faith through grace. And then once you get there, you got to work as hard as you can to get better. The point of all of it is that we are saved by grace and that then we are transformed because of grace in our lives. And that's what he says, right? When he says, how does my heart get fixed? He says, your heart gets fixed. And this is the hinge of the whole book. He says, therefore, because of what Christ has already done for you, the basic idea is you surrender yourself to the Lord. And in the midst of that, in the midst of it, he changes us. In fact, it says that don't be conformed anymore to this world. The, 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 the word there literally is that you'll stop being conformed to this world as you are transformed by the renewing of your minds. The key word there is transformed. And if you've been around, I've talked about this before. The word there is literally metamorpho. We get our metamorphosis from, which is the complete change. It's the word that we use to describe a caterpillar who goes into a cocoon and emerges as a butterfly. Now, I'm not an expert on butterflies. I don't know how all that happens, but this is what I do know. They don't go into the cocoon and just rearrange the pieces of their body into something else. What actually happens is when they go into the cocoon, an enzyme releases that turns their body into a soup. And those cells rearrange into a new creation with wings and antenna and eyes and all the rest. And after a few weeks, he nibbles a hole in the cocoon and out pops a butterfly. And then without any classes or any coaching or any coercion, the butterfly flies. Now, one of the cool things about having a wife who is a second grade teacher at Madison Creek is every year they get caterpillars in. They get those in. They watch them go through the cocoon stage and then to emerge as butterflies. They teach that. And so every year I was, she will have pictures of her kids and her kids holding the butterfly that's, you know, landed on their finger. They put a little sugar on them. Maybe you all have done that. Put a little sugar on there. It lands on your finger. And the expression on the kid's face to realize that caterpillar they saw has now become the butterfly. And in the midst of all of that, we realize that it comes from a power that we can't conjure up. And so what I don't want to happen over the next three weeks is for us to think, well, this is what has to happen for me to grow. I have to do this, and this is my, this is my ladder to get to where I want to be in the Christian life. The reality is what he says is that true worship comes out of a life that is already dedicated to the Lord that has been saved and that we depend on the grace that is there. So what has to be a part of true worship? Well, it's all in verse 1 of chapter 12. And the first thing that we see in this passage is this, is that true worship is responsive. And that starts with the very first word, therefore. You see, Paul has been building a case for 11 chapters about the grace of God in our lives. And what he says is that true worship comes not because we are trying to obtain anything, but it comes in response to the reality that God has already saved us. 
mean, he's talked about in Romans chapter 1 about how that, that all of us have gone away from the Lord, that we've exchanged God's ideals for the ideals of humanity and that we are following our own path. In Romans chapter 3, he tells us that everyone has sinned and all fall short of the glory of God. He tells us in Romans 6 that we have the wages of that sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. And he tells us in Romans chapter 10 that if we will believe in our heart and confess with our mouth that Jesus is Lord, we will be saved. And then he gets to chapter 12 and he says, because of that, for the reasons of that, with everything we have in the background, with everything we know about he's already done for us, with all that we can grab hold to that Christ loves us, because of that, we offer worship, praise, our lives to him. You see, in those days, like most days, religious activity and sacrifices whether Jewish or pagan, were always done to get something from God. Forgiveness or whatever they may need at that moment. To get a blessing on their crops. To get forgiveness from their sins. To get over what happened with their neighbor. They would offer a sacrifice in order to receive forgiveness. But Paul spent 11 chapters explaining that we already have that. We don't need it anymore. Here's the reality. It is impossible, if you are a follower of Jesus Christ, it is impossible for you to be more forgiven than you are right now. Like, you can't get more forgiven. His blood wiped away our sins. In the same way, it's impossible for you to get more blessed than you are right now. Your eternity has been secured. And sometimes that's not easy to see. we got things going on in our lives. we got things that happen in our lives. But in the midst of it, we must understand that our eternity has been secured. And we are blessed beyond measure. Paul says, in response to that, that he has saved us, that he has changed us, that he's in the process of molding us, that he has forgiven us, that you have everything you could ever need or imagine Because of that, we offer our lives. It's a response. It's not trying to get anything. If you're here today because you think being here will make you more favorable to God, then you have missed the point of what we're doing. I'm not telling you to leave. Okay? But that's not the point. The reason we come here is because we get together to celebrate a God who has already shown his love for us and has saved us. And we don't have to do anything about that. He has finished the work. Now, I imagine sometimes my life where I would be without Jesus. And because of what he's done, why I wouldn't want to trust my life to anyone else, including myself. I read this week the story of a guy named C.T. Studd. Isn't that a great name? C.T. Studd. This is C.T. Studd right here. Um, he was a professional cricket player. Now, I know for us, that's not a big deal. But back then, he was on England's national cricket team. And he was considered to be one of the best athletes in the world. I know he doesn't look like a real professional athlete with a bow tie and all, but he's, he is. And at the height of his fame, at the very top of what he was doing... He wrestled with this thought in his life, that his life was yielding nothing or very little of eternal value. And he sensed God's call to carry the gospel to the nations. And so he quit cricket and he spent the rest of his day in China or India 
and then Africa, where he eventually died. Now, I know for us, we don't know C.T. Studd. We've never really thought of C.T. Studd. We don't know his story. But in that day when he did it, it was a major story that this professional athlete, this professional entertainer at the top of his career was giving it all up to follow Jesus. It'd be like today if uh, Drew Brees or Tom Brady or LeBron James or, I don't know, Kanye West started singing about Jesus all the time. And people all over the world said, what are you doing this for? Why did you give up what we all, we all would love to be, the most famous cricket player in England? Why did you give that up? And this is his response. He said, if Jesus Christ be God and he died for me, then no sacrifice I give can be too great to make for him. True worship, whatever it looks like, whatever form you find it in, first of all, is simply responsive to what God has done in our lives. Here's the second thing we see in this passage. He says, therefore, offer your bodies in view of God's mercies as a living sacrifice. True worship is active. Now that's emphasized by an oxymoron here, right? You know what an oxymoron is, right? It's a word that put together, or two words, that shouldn't make sense because they're contradictory. In fact, you may not know this, but the original formation of oxymoron is two words. Oxy, which means sharp, and moron, which means dull. Y'all didn't know that, right? If you did, that's good. But you know oxymorons, awful good, deafening silence, our only choice, the larger half, and the wise fool. Some of you will get... Why those are oxymorons at lunch, maybe. But the point is, they don't seem to make sense. So why does living sacrifice not seem to make sense? Because what happens to a sacrifice? It's dead. Like, that's the point, right? Like, a living sacrifice doesn't make sense because if it's living, it hasn't been sacrificed. And yet, that is what is described here. He says that when view of what God has done in response to what God has done, all worship must be a living sacrifice. Let's take the first part of that, living. What does that mean? What does he mean by living? Well, I think it means two things primarily with other things around it. But the two things primarily is this, that true worship, following Christ, doing what you're called to do, is not a spectator sport. You can't sit on the sidelines. It requires participation. It requires enthusiasm. It requires effort. It requires doing things. It requires motion. It requires actually being active. Whether that's in how you live your life out on a daily basis, whether that is how you worship. And sometimes, you know, I come from a, I come from a pretty traditional worship background where I was taught as a kid, you stood there and you sang the song in a soft voice and you didn't act out at all. You were quiet the whole time. And I know that that was to keep me in control because I could be a little crazy sometimes in the pew, but that's not necessarily biblical. Activity is a part of worship. What else in your life that you are really excited about do you say, I'm going to celebrate that as calmly as I possibly can? Right? I'm going to tell you, I am over the moon excited about this. I'm not going to show it at all. Like what we do is we... 
We're active when we're excited. We're active when things are going well. We're active when it's happening. The first thing living means is that you can't sit on the sidelines and you can't be stayed and you can't be dignified all the time. You can't just be buttoned up. That it is an active deal. Here's the other thing that it means. It means a living sacrifice requires recommitment daily. Because here's the thing about a living sacrifice. It likes to crawl off the altar. And my life and your life, when we are truly trying to live for the Lord, is going to be a daily recommitment. Not to gain, again, this isn't to gain any kind of special favor with the Lord. This is just as a response to what He has done for us. But it's going to require us daily to recommit. When I was nine years old, sitting in a church in Dyersburg, Tennessee, I, ex- I asked Jesus Christ to come and to save me. And I believe at that moment of my life, I was forever changed. I was sealed for eternity with him. I went home and told my parents. That night I went back and told the church. I was baptized a few weeks later. But if that's the only moment in my life that I ever laid my life on the altar for the Lord, I would be way away from what he intended for me to be. When I was 14 years old, I was at Ridgecrest, North Carolina, Centrifuge Youth Camp with my youth group. And I said to some counselors that around me at a worship service on a Sunday, I mean, on a, like a Tuesday night, I went down and I said, listen, I believe that God is calling me and I want to offer my life to him full time that I'm going to pursue him as a pastor for the rest of my life. But if that's the last time I committed that to the Lord, I'd be way away from where God intends for me to be. Because I still have this old nature of sin that fights within me. And it is a daily decision to put myself up on the altar and to offer my life again to the Lord, whatever that means. There's the second phrase of that. It's living, it's active. But then that second phrase is harder for us in many ways. It is a sacrifice. True worship is sacrificial. Let me ask you a question. Have you legitimately, really put everything on the table for the Lord? Your talents, your possessions, your future, your family, your career, your house, where you live, what you do, how you interact with people, how you spend your money, how you spend your time. Used to, we talked about this, like um, that you need to, to give God, put, and I've used this phrase here, that you need to put a blank check there before the Lord. Just a blank check. And the, the difference between giving someone a blank signed check and a gift card. You're right, the difference, right? Between a blank signed check means they have access to anything in your bank account. A gift card means I'm going to give you $20. Now today, people don't, some people don't even know what checks are. They, they're not around as much anymore. So maybe for a new generation, we talk about the difference between Venmoing somebody $20 and giving them the login to your bank account online. Like there's a limit. And a lot of us live as if we're Venmoing God portions of our lives. God, here's 20% of my life you can have today. You can have as much of that, as much of that as you want. Take it. But we won't give him access to the whole account. Here's the thing about sacrifice. It hurts. 
It's not comfortable. It will cost you something. And I don't know what that is. I don't know how it is. God's not necessarily opposed to your comfort, but I can tell you this. When you read Scripture, the people that truly followed where God intended for them to go, comfort is not a word that you would describe their lives. It's going to be something that will make you uncomfortable, that will make you nervous, that will make you step out of zones that you are okay kind of swimming in. But true worship in our lives is going to be, first of all, something that is responsive to what God has already done. It's going to require us a daily re-giving of our lives to Him. And it's going to cost us something. That may just simply be your preferences. That may be how you want to do things. That may be control in your life. That may be the security that you have in a bank account that's built up. But it will require sacrifice. And here's the last thing about true worship and then we're done. True worship is exclusive. He says, Brothers and sisters, in view of God's mercies, I urge you to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. Now, some people read that and they go, of course, who else would you give it to? But the reality is in our lives, we often give our sacrifice, our bodies, ourselves, our time, our efforts, our thoughts to other things beside the Lord. And true worship only has one destination And that is God. It's interesting that in Romans chapter 1, Paul starts the whole discussion of what's happened to our world, of what's going on in our lives. And he says at the core of all sin, at the center of all sin, is a worship disorder. And what he means by that is, he says this in chapter 1, that what happens is we turn the attention that is reserved only for God into things that he has created, into things of this world, into things of our relationships, into things of our job. We turn the things that ought to be dedicated completely to the Lord and we give it to other things. And so Paul says that with us at the core, at the rest of our sin, is idolatry. That we decide something has more worth Worship is just a word that means worth-ship, what we give worth to. That something in our lives has more worth, something in our life has more weight, has more reality than we think possessing it. We're so focused on it that we crowd out what we ought to be giving to the Lord. So I want to do this real quickly. And if you, I encourage you, if you've got anything you can write on, if you need to pull something out of the pew, if you've got a pen, I, I want you to, I want you to answer some questions for me. And here's what I want to tell you beforehand. This is a little bit of, a, it's a pop quiz. Everybody's excited about those, right? And we're going to use this to kind of see those things in our lives that might be the areas where we would be, we might be, um, tempted to worship instead of the Lord. It's called the, um, I've found it online. It's called the idolatry detection test. Doesn't that sound like a fun test? And here's what I want you to do. I want you to just write these out. Don't, don't show this to anybody. This is good. I'm not going to pick them up and grade them. I'm not going to have you come and put them on the altar at the end and sign your name to them. I'm not going to do any of that. This is for you. What I also want to tell you is just because you answer something on one of the questions doesn't mean it's an idol in your life. But if you see a pattern, and we'll talk about that in a minute, then we may need to think about it. Here's the first question, all right? So write down the answer to this. The thing I'd be most worried about losing is... Blank. So fill in that blank. The thing I'd be most worried about losing is. Now we're in church and the temptation is going to be to write Jesus. Don't write Jesus. Okay. Don't be spiritual. There. This is a self-examination. 
Maybe it's family. Maybe it's money. Maybe it's respect. Maybe it's success. Here's the second blank you fill in. The thing I'd be most worried about never achieving or attaining is. So the thing that I would be most worried about never getting. So maybe it's fame. Maybe it's kids turning out well or kids getting into the right school. Maybe it's success in some way. Next question. If I could change blank about myself right now, I would change it. So maybe that's careers or living situation or something about how you look or your personality or your marital status. Another question. Throughout your life, what have you been most willing to sacrifice for? Worship and sacrifice go hand in hand. So what are you willing to sacrifice for? For success, you're willing to sacrifice for reputation. Next question. What has made you the most bitter in life? What got taken away that you couldn't get over? What, maybe you got passed over a promotion. Maybe you didn't get selected for a team. Maybe you had a relationship that went bad. Maybe you've never been really recognized for who you are or what you do. Maybe your spouse doesn't see you. Maybe your kids don't appreciate it. What is it that makes you bitter? Similarly, what can you not forgive? Maybe it's someone, maybe it's something, but what can you not forgive? Christian counselor David Pallison says, The inability to forgive is almost always connected to an idol you think someone robbed you of. Another question. What are you willing to lie for? That's not usually a question we ask in church, by the way. I know. What are you willing to bend the truth? It's not necessarily because you're dishonest, but because you're protecting someone. Your reputation, your prosperity, your comfort, your family. Just a couple more. Where do you turn for comfort? When things go wrong, when you get criticized, when things start to fall apart in your life, where do you turn to tell yourself you're okay? Maybe it's in your successes and your achievement. Maybe it's your family. Maybe it's at your own talents. I'm still good enough or I'm smart enough. Or maybe it's the bank account you've built up. Or maybe you turn to food or drink or something more sinister. And here's the last one. Whose approval do you seek? What person or group do you say, that's who I want to hear say, well done? It's your friends, your husband, your wife, your parents, your team. Who is it? Here's what I want you to do, okay? Like I said, my guess is a lot of the stuff you wrote down is not necessarily bad. In fact, there's likely most of you in this room didn't write out anything that's bad on that list. But here's the question. If you have something that shows up in that list two or three times, it likely has a propensity in your life to turn into idolatry the way you treat it. And Paul, throughout his writings, would say that the gospel shows us that there is only one that is worthy of your worship. There's only one that is worth sacrificing for completely. There's only one that can take away your bitterness and your anger. There's only one whose approval we should seek and we already have. 
And here's the thing. We can look for other places to find it, but it won't solve the issue. That it only comes in our relationship with the Lord. Now here's the thing. You think, okay, so what does that have to do with worship? And how does that relate to my life? True worship is when we give ourselves completely to discovering who Christ is, what He has done for us, and then we live out of the abundance of what He's done, giving thanks to Him for it, sacrificing daily to see His kingdom come to pass on earth as it is in heaven because He alone is worthy. And here's what's really cool about this. If you look at the end of Romans 12, 2, it says, when that happens, we begin to live that way, we are transformed by the renewing of our mind because we're focusing on Christ, we're focusing on Him, we're worshiping Him, we're living our life out for Him. And as a result, when we have our mind renewed by Him, we can discern what is the good, pleasing, and perfect will of God. Sometimes people ask me the question, what is God's will in my life? What am I supposed to do in this situation? And there are situations where we must go to the Lord and ask and pray and seek the Lord's wisdom in the midst of it. For most situations, for 99% of the situations you encounter on a daily basis, What is intended in Scripture is that you will be so in tune with who God is and what He's doing in your life that when you have a decision to make, your decision will become the decision that God intends because you know who He is, you know what He's after, you know what His desires are, you know what He loves, you know what He would be against. And you just live your life as someone that is so in tune with the Lord that as a result of it, you are making wise decisions on a daily basis. The will of God is not some mysterious magic eight ball kind of formula. Y'all know the magic eight ball is, the old toy shake. I know some of you are Christians, so you didn't have those, but some of us did. Okay, And you know, you would say, um, is today a good day to go to the beach? And you'd shake it. Well, maybe not, which would never say that, but it could, right? Um, or uh, out, what was the thing? Was outlook cloudy or like not clear? And you'd be like, what is going on here, right? Like it, all that kind of stuff. Some people treat God's will that way, like, Lord, like, just give me an answer. Let me, let me know exactly what it is here today. And, and there are situations that we pour our lives and we pray about and we seek the Lord. But there's also this freedom that comes in just worshiping the Lord on a daily basis by sacrificially living your life out for the one true God who is worthy of it all. And as He transforms your mind, you begin to act and think and be more like Him. And that result is you just do His will. So as we talk over the next couple of weeks about kind of corporate worship, how this idea plays itself out when we come together, I want us to remember that at its core, our lives should be lives that are lived in response to what God has already done for us. That are consistently recommitted to Him daily because it requires it from our sin nature. That is sacrificial, meaning that we will see and give some things that may be dear and true and that we love, but it's for our following Christ. And that we give all of that solely to Him. Would you pray with me today?